Thank you for checking out our sermon here at New Grace. We are excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. It is our prayer that it is a blessing to you. We just want to make you aware of a couple things before we get to the message. First, we would love to connect with you. You can find us on Facebook at New Grace BC. Also, be sure to check out our website, reachingroanoke.com. There, you can find out more about who we are and where we are going as a church. Again, thank you for checking out our sermon here at New Grace. Please let us know of any questions you may have or any way that we can help you and your family. Enjoy the message. Uh, Of course, now Thanksgiving is officially over, and we are now in the Christmas season. Those of you who put up your Christmas decorations before Thanksgiving, those of you who listen to Christmas music before Thanksgiving, you are not right with God. It's just, it's in the scripture somewhere, I'll find it, Uh, but I mean, a lot of people start, I mean, the stores start in like October. Uh, They start selling Christmas stuff in October. It's, It's hard for me to keep April at bay. Uh, she'll start listening to Christmas music. Uh, she's done it in the past as early as September, which I told her was just ridiculous. And so now I can keep her at bay till October. Then she starts listening to it privately, uh, but she doesn't start listening to it publicly in the house until the week of Thanksgiving. Then it's Christmas is on, and the house gets decorated, and Christmas stuff gets up. And so Christmas is now officially upon us. How many of you have finished your Christmas shopping? Okay, good. No crazy people in here. How many have started their Christmas shopping? Okay. okay. How many of you have not yet started shopping for Christmas? How many of you are going to wait until Amazon Prime will get it there right before Christmas Eve? That's me. I hate shopping. I despise it. I hate going to the stores. I hate dealing with the crowds. I hate dealing with people. And so Amazon Prime to me is the greatest invention in the last hundred years. You find what you want. You click. Two days later, boom, it's on your doorstep. You don't even got to go to the store. You don't have to deal with people. And I like that aspect of not having to deal with people. But if you haven't yet started shopping, you do have 24 shopping days left until Christmas. So you might want to get on that. Now, according to the Washington Post, UPS will deliver about 750 million packages this holiday season. And uh, one of the most fun parts about Christmas is the waiting. Waiting to see uh, what people got you. Waiting to see the reaction of your loved ones as they open up that special gift that you, you took 30 minutes searching on Amazon for and clicked the button and got it there in two days. The, the, the waiting to see. And the kids especially. Kids love waiting, finding out what they're going to get. You know, our kids, they start shaking gifts under the tree to try to figure it out. And so we started putting rocks in boxes and just really throwing them off. They have no idea what they're getting. And so waiting and anticipation is an exciting part of Christmas. And there are certain ways you can extend that waiting and anticipation throughout the year. For $50 a month, you can buy a loved one and a subscription to the Bacon of the Month Club. <laughs> Every month, two pounds of artisanal bacon will be delivered to their door. If any of y'all are wondering, that's what I want for Christmas, okay? Bacon of the Month Club. Uh, there's also a Pickle of the Month Club, which I find a little bit odd. There's a Peanut Butter and Jelly of the Month Club 
where you can get gourmet peanut butter and jellies delivered to your door. I don't know how you make peanut butter and jelly gourmet, uh, but I kind of want to find out. And so you can imagine your loved one's ex- excitement as every month they have a package lived to the door, and if you really love them, they have two pounds of bacon waiting for them, which, let's just face it, that's a good day all around. And so Christmas is a time of waiting and anticipation, waiting, children waiting for the big day to arrive. And when you think about it, the majority of our lives are about waiting. The majority of our lives are about preparing to do stuff. Look at Thanksgiving. How long did it take you to prepare the Thanksgiving meal versus how long it took you to eat it? We cooked for two days. We were done in like 30 minutes of eating. We cooked for two days, we ate for 30 minutes, and we slept on the couch for two and a half hours after the fact. But we we did a lot of preparation and waiting for the big event. And that's what most of life is about. Preparing for your career. Preparing for your life. Preparing and waiting. And it makes sense that Christmas would feel the same way. In fact, the entire Old Testament of the Bible was about Israel and in in broad terms the world waiting and preparing for the savior to come. Waiting and preparing for the Messiah to come to man. The the Greek word used to describe the waiting in the Old Testament is the Greek word protavalium. And it's it's a compound of of two Greek words. Protos, meaning first, and evangelion, meaning gospel or the good news. So it is, they're talking about the first mention of the gospel. The first mention of the good news of God's redemptive plan for man. And so that's, that's what the New Testament Hebrews use to describe the first declaration of the gospel. And this, this first declaration of the gospel is found in Genesis chapter number 3, verse number 15. It is right after the fall of man. The first two chapters God has, has made the heaven and the earth. He's created everything and said it's very good, it's good. The first day is good, second day is good, third day is good, fourth day is good, fifth day is good. He makes man and says it's good. But then he looks at his creation, he looks at man and says it is not good that man should be alone. So he made cocker spaniels. No, he made woman. And the wife, Eve, was made to be Adam's partner, to be the the co-ruler, if you would, of God's creation to, to help take care of everything that God had created. And so for we don't know how long, but they're, they're living in paradise, they're walking with God, and then one day Eve is tempted. She takes the forbidden fruit. She eats of the, for the, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. She gives it to Adam who's there with her. He eats of it, and man is fallen into sin. As soon as they sin, their eyes are opened, and they realize they're naked. Before then, the Bible says they were naked and unashamed. Now, it doesn't mean that they were just proud of their nakedness. It means they had nothing to hide from each other or from God. They were completely open with each other and completely open with God. But now that they're sin in their heart, they're, they're ashamed. So they sow fig leaves together to try to cover up their sin. 
God comes down to talk to him as he's done every day since they've been created. Instead of going to meet him and walk with him, they hide from him. And God says, going through the garden, Adam, where are you? And he knew where they were. He knew what had happened. And he finds them and he says, why are you hiding? And Adam says, we, we were hiding because we were naked. He says, well, who told you you were naked? And Adam, of course, as every good sinner does, blames Eve. My fault, God, that woman you made, she made me eat that fruit. And so God looks at Eve and says, Eve, well, what do you got to say for yourself? And just like every good sinner, she blames the snake. It wasn't me, God, it was that serpent. He tricked me and deceived me and, and I ate. But you know, Adam was right there and he let me and he ate too, so it's not all my fault, God. And so in Genesis chapter 3, God begins to pass judgment on, on man, on woman, and on the serpent for their role in the fall of mankind. He told Adam and Eve that because of their sin, they're going to be cast out of the presence of God. And all their children will be cast out of the presence of God. See, before the fall, man enjoyed intimate, personal fellowship with God the Father. They literally got to walk with Him in the cool of the day. They literally got to talk to God. And how, how incredible would it be if every morning you woke up and when you went to have your cup of coffee, there was God having your call, His coffee with you. I mean, that'd be, that'd be incredible. He could help us and encourage us and teach us and train us. And they had that privilege. They had that, that right to, to walk with God and spend time with God and be in God's presence. But because of their sin, they are cast out of the presence of God. Then God looks at Adam and says, Adam, because of what you've done, you're going to have to labor all the days of your life. Before the fall, life was easy. They lived in paradise. All the trees were there for them to eat. I mean, they had, they had, we have no idea how many trees and fruits and plants they had to enjoy to eat. They were, if you study your Bible, and I don't really like this part of it because it gives me a, a bad feeling about what heaven's like, but they were vegetarians. They were, if you want to get technical, they were vegans. All they ate were plants and vegetables. They didn't eat any, any animals. They didn't eat anything like that, which to me I don't understand. I mean, because God made pig taste good for a purpose. But they, they only ate fruit and vegetables. But they had, we don't know how many, how many options they had to eat from. And God said, you can eat of all the fruit of the garden except that one tree. They never had to weed the garden. And if you've ever gardened, you know it's hard. You've got to go out there all the time and weed and water and pull out thorns and stuff and keep the animals away from eating it. It's, just, it's, it's a hard thing to do, but it was easy for them. They didn't have to do anything. They just had to wake up and go and eat. But now God says, because... Because you've sinned, now the earth isn't going to bring forth the fruit like it used to. It's going to be hard for you. You're going to have to toil. You're going to have to sweat. You're going to have to work hard to provide for your family. Then he, he looks at Eve and says, Eve, because of your sin, you are condemned to live into submission to your husband. Before the fall, she wasn't supposed to be in submission. She was a partner. She was an equal partner with God, with Adam. But now God says, because you've sinned, now you're... You're going to live your life in submission to Adam. And not only that, but childbirth will be a lot more painful for you. Again, we don't know how easy it was before the fall, but now you ladies, when you, you, know, you get mad because you're, you have all that pain during childbirth, you need the, the, the C-sections, you need the epidurals and all this stuff. And you, I mean, look, childbirth's no, no picnic. That's Eve's fault. So when y'all get to heaven, you can blame her. But he looks at Eve and says, now childbirth's going to be a lot harder for you. And then he looks at the serpent and says, because you were deceitful and because you deceived them, you are going to have to crawl on your belly all the days of your life and eat dust. 
That means snakes had legs at first. Think about that for a minute. Snakes are terrible enough. But then you put legs on them? So that's just mind-boggling to me. But then he says this to the serpent. In Genesis 3, he says, And I will put enmity, or strife, between thee and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. It shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now this, this isn't just God predicting that humans and snakes would never get along. Though, biblically, we're not supposed to. People who like snakes and play with snakes, something wrong with them. And so it's just it's weird. And so God's not saying, you know, snakes and humans will always be enemies. Uh, it is a promise of the coming Messiah. The work that the serpent began when he deceived Eve and man fell would be crushed by woman's offspring. Not, not their offspring, not, not man and woman's offspring, but woman's offspring. And that's, that's an important distinction. Because when Jesus came in the form of a baby, he didn't have an earthly father. He had an earthly mother. Eve was the, the or Mary was the vessel that God used to bring the Messiah in. But he, he didn't have an earthly father. He was the offspring of Mary only. That offspring that Mary brought forth would be the Messiah would be the Savior of the world, the one that Christmas points to and the one that Christmas celebrates. And so from that moment on, the entire Old Testament prepares us and points us to the moment when the Savior would come to man. It points to the one who would come and destroy the curse of sin and the power of death and the power of hell once and for all. And that's what the entire Old Testament was about. The law that was given in the Old Testament, the sacrifices in the Old Testament, everything showed man's need for a Savior. It showed man's inability to save themselves. The slavery and the sorrow of Israel, it points to the bondage that we all face before we accept salvation and accept God's payment for our freedom. And the prophets, they looked for and longed for the coming of the Messiah. In fact, there are over 570 verses that talk about Jesus' birth. That talk about the Messiah coming to man. Besides the direct prophecies in the Old Testament, it is filled with shadows of Jesus. From pieces of the temple piece of the tabernacle, the sacrifices. The Old Testament is just filled with images and shadows of the coming Messiah. And the prophets, they were tasked with reminding Old Testament Israel that there was something greater coming. That yes, now they were suffering. Yes, now they had bondage. Yes, now they had difficulties. But something greater was coming. They were tasked with reminding them that they were waiting and preparing for something better. And God used these men to prophesy when Jesus would be born, who Jesus would be born to, and even what town he would be born in. And we're going to look at one of those prophecies this morning. So look at Micah chapter number 5, <coughs> verse number 2. 
Prophet Micah here says, But thou, Bethlehem, Euphrates, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. So God used Micah to remind Israel and to remind us that the Messiah was coming, something greater was coming, but also to tell where he was coming. He, he, Micah says the Messiah would be born in a little town called Bethlehem. Now the, the one that Micah is talking about, he has over 100 names in Scripture. He's called the Alpha and the Omega. He's called the Word of Life. He's called the bright and morning star. He's called the light of the world. He is the I am. He is the ancient of days. He is Jesus. His name Emmanuel means God with us. The first time that he arrived, when Jesus arrived the first time, he didn't arrive in glory as a conquering hero. He came humbly as a servant. He came quietly to a small and forgotten town that didn't even have room for his arrival. Now, we can't allow the circumstances that he chose to fulfill the prophecies of his coming to diminish who this child really is. This baby that was born in a manger in a small town of Bethlehem, where it was so insignificant to those in the time that they couldn't even find room for him in an inn or a house or anywhere to be born. He had to be born in a stable. This unassuming child is the Ancient of Days. He's the Creator God. He is the author and giver of life, and He is the Word of God. And for hundreds of years, the Israelites and the prophets, they looked forward to His coming. They were waiting for His rescue. And that's what Advent is all about. It is about waiting and preparing. As the Israelites and Old Testament Jews, they waited and prepared for Jesus to come the first time as the Messiah. We today, we wait and prepare for him to come the second time and receive us unto glory. Advent actually means waiting. See, today we stand between two realities. We look back to the baby that was born. We look back to the manger and understand that Jesus came, that God came to man to, to live a perfectly sinless life, to die a death that we should have suffered on the cross, to shed his blood, to die and be buried, and then three days later to rise again to redeem us to God the Father. We look back to that. But we also look forward to the day where the trumpet of God will sound. For the dead in Christ shall rise first, and then those of us that are alive and remain shall be caught up with Him in the air and forever be with the Lord. We look back to what has happened and look forward to what will happen one day. As the Old Testament prophets, they waited for Jesus to come the first time. We wait and prepare for His second coming. Because of that, we, we know how Micah and Isaiah and Moses... And the rest of the Old Testament saints, we know how they felt as they waited for God to fulfill His promise of the Messiah. We know through Scripture that Jesus is coming again. We have the prophecies. We are waiting. We just don't know when He's coming. And so like Israel of the Old Testament, we need to prepare our hearts as we wait on Him. 
So this morning as we begin the Advent season, let's see the hope that we have as we wait and prepare ourselves for God to come to man. First thing we notice, well, for God to come back for us. First, how do we prepare? First thing, preparation begins with repentance. Preparation begins with repentance. John the Baptist was the last prophet who had to wait for Jesus' first arrival. And he didn't have to wait long. John the Baptist was only six months older than Jesus. He began his ministry just six months before Jesus began his earthly ministry. But he, he had to wait for Jesus to begin his ministry. And he shows us how to prepare our hearts and to live our lives for Jesus now and how to live in preparation for his return. In Matthew 3, 2, John says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Matthew 3, 8, he says, Therefore bear fruit worthy of repentance. In verse 11 he says, Indeed I baptize you with water unto repentance. Now, there's a lot of debate in Christian circles about what repentance's role is in salvation. A lot of people say if you, for repentance for salvation, you have to confess all your sins you've ever committed. And once you've confessed all your sins, then you can be saved. Well, number one, I don't have that much time. And number two, I don't have that much memory. I have no idea all the sins I've committed. I usually don't know the sins I commit on a day-to-day basis until someone tells me. Usually it's April when she says, you shouldn't have done that. You're probably right, but I didn't realize it. And so, you know, to confess all your sins before you're saved, that's not what repentance biblically is. Repentance is, is more than just feeling bad about something that you did. Now, repentance begins with sorrow, with godly grief, but it goes further than that. And the Greek word repentance is matanoi. And it literally means to change direction or change your mind. So Jesus isn't telling us, you better feel bad. Or John isn't telling us, you better feel bad about all the, the bad things you've done. What John is saying is, you need to change your mind and change your direction on what you are trusting for redemption reconsider how you think about things. And so Advent, it gives us an opportunity to reconsider our approach to God and make the changes that we need to. We need to follow the example of the prophets as well, while we wait for His second coming and we prepare our hearts for Him. So how do we prepare our hearts for the second coming? How do we prepare our hearts for God this holiday season? What role does repentance play in our lives during Advent? Well, first of all, if you're here this morning and you are trusting anything for your eternal salvation besides the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you need to change your mind. It's not His death, burial, and resurrection plus anything. If you're trusting your baptism, if you're trusting your church membership, if you're trusting your tithing record, if you're trusting your good works, if you're trusting the fact that you're a good person and you, you try to do more good than you do bad, you are wrong. You need to repent of what you are trusting. The problem with That was the problem that the Jews faced in Jesus' day. They were trusting in their rituals. They were trusting in their sacrifices. They were trusting in their religiosity to earn them eternal life. And John was saying, you need to repent of that because 
the Messiah's coming. Stop trusting in yourself. Stop trusting in your works. Stop trusting in anything besides the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for your eternal salvation. They trusted in, in their works so much that they missed true salvation when it showed up in the form of a baby. Those who should have been there at Jesus' birth, the religious leaders... The, the Pharisees who were so well-versed in Scripture and prided themselves on knowing the Bible, the ones who should have been looking for Him and should have expected Him to come as a baby and should have accepted Him, rejected Him because He wasn't good enough for them. He wasn't showy enough for them. So the ones that should have been looking for God missed it because they were trusting in themselves. So if you're trusted in anything besides the gospel... For salvation, you need to repent of that. You need to change your mind on what you're trusting. You need to put your trust in Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection for payment of your sin. But maybe you're here this morning, you have trusted him. You've accepted the gospel. You know that you're going to heaven, not because of anything you've done, but only because of what he's done. But your life isn't living up to his standards. Say, what is his standard? Now, we talked about this a couple weeks ago as we talked about a religion. But as children of God, we are called Christians, which are little Christ. Our job is to reflect the image of Jesus. So that when people see us, they don't see us. They see God in us. They see Christ in us. That's why they were called Christians in Antioch, because when people looked at them, they saw Jesus in how they treated people, how they acted, how they were, were kind to each other and loved each other and took care of the poor. They saw Jesus in them. So if we're not living up to that, if we're not reading our Bible and studying it and having the Word of God change us and convict us and the Holy Spirit guide us, we need to say, what am I, what am I, how am I living? Am I living to glorify God or am I living to glorify myself? Am I living to please Him or am I living to please me? And let's just be real honest with each other. Probably 90%, if not more, and I'm including myself in that number, 90% of us spend most of our lives living for us. We want to make ourselves happy. We make our lives easier. It doesn't matter what God wants us to do. What do I want to do? What do I want to do in this situation? How do I want to treat this person because they treated me poorly? And so we are to reflect the image of God. So if we're not reflecting His image, if when people look at us, they don't see God in us, We need to repent of what we're doing, how we're living, and change direction. Instead of running from God, we need to run to God. If we're not living in fellowship with Him, we need to change the direction of our life. And it's it's more than just confessing your sin of not walking with Him. It's changing the direction of your life and walking to Him. Whether that involves being more faithful to church. Whether it involves being more faithful into the Word of God and reading the Word of God and studying the Word of God. Look, we talked last Sunday night about, the, uh, about how the Word of God is supposed to be flooding our lives and our lives are be saturated with us. And look, we even put it on Facebook and Instagram how you could join the Word of God diet. How, how are we doing on the Word of God diet where every day, every time you eat, you read the Word of God? I'll be honest with you, I was doing good till Thursday and then I thought, I can't read that much Bible. It's a lot of food. But that's, that's how we're supposed to live our life. Whenever we're, our life is supposed to be saturated with the Word of God. And I gave you, uh, there's, I gave you the, the YouVersion app. You can have the Word of God read to you. There's the Dwell app. You download the Dwell app. And you can, you can have the Word of God read to you. 
as you're driving down the road, as you're cleaning your house, just, just have the Word. You don't got to spend your entire day pouring over the Scriptures in a book. You can just have the Word of God saturated with your life. Maybe that's the step you need to take. Say, God, I've, I've not been having enough of your Word in my life, and I need to repent of that, and Lord, allow your Word to, to have a major impact and a major part in my life. Maybe you need to repent of your prayer life, because your prayer life is, is lacking. Maybe you pray at meals and that's it. Maybe, you know, you just pray one t- a couple times a day, but you're really not living in constant prayer with God. See, the Bible says, pray without ceasing. We are to be in constant communication with God, and if we're not, if we're not living in constant fellowship and communication with God, we're not living for God. We need to repent of that and get right with God. Maybe it involves being more faithful to your tithes and offerings. Look, I know Christmas is here. We all got bills to pay. We all got presents to buy. But the Word of God is still the Word of God, and God still says, be faithful in your tithes and offerings. Maybe you need to repent of that and say, God, I've not been trusting. And look, I know tithes and offerings is a faith issue. I'm not saying it's not. I understand. Most of us, we live paycheck to paycheck. And someone coming along and saying, you need to take 10% of your paycheck and give it to the church, when you need, usually you need 110% of your paycheck. When someone says take 10% away, it's a faith issue, but, it's a, but that's how God expects us to live. God wants us to live by faith. Because God says anything that's not of faith is sin. So maybe you say, God, it doesn't make sense, and I don't know how I'm going to do it, but Lord, I'm going I'm to trust you and be faithful in my tithes and offerings and trust God to come through. Maybe you need to be faithful in just spreading his word more. You know, Christmas season's coming. We're going to go to Christmas parties. We're going to buy people presents. Are we going to invite people to come to church and hear the gospel? Are we going to share a testimony with people to try to help them hear the word of God? Maybe you need to be more faithful in that. Whatever it involves, we need to prepare our hearts for Jesus. And that preparation begins with repentance. Second thing we need to notice, preparation increases with expectation. When China was getting ready to host a 2008 Olympics, they had a vision of showing the world how powerful they were, how mighty they were. And so in 2001, the International Olympic Committee, they announced that China would host the Games. And as soon as the announcement was made, China began preparing immediately. By 2007, they had built a new stadium, a new swimming center, a new shooting range, a new cycling center, a new tennis center, and a new hockey stadium. They had used more than 15,000 performers to, for the opening ceremonies. And of those 15,000 performers, they had 2,500 of them perform and demonstrate martial arts. And that group that helped in the opening ceremony, that's 15,000 people, they lived and prepared in an army camp for three months and practiced 16 hours a day. They were given diapers to wear during rehearsals so they didn't have to take bathroom breaks. One rehearsal lasted 51 hours in a rainstorm. But with all that preparation, they put on a spectacular show. They prepared before the event came. They had huge expectations, they made incredible preparations, and they delivered in an amazing way. Have you ever thought, 
How would you prepare for work tomorrow? How would you prepare for school tomorrow if when you got there you expected Jesus to be there with you? How would you prepare yourself? How would you prepare for church if you knew when you got here you are going to meet in fellowship with God? How would you spend your time getting ready in the morning if you knew the Holy Spirit was waiting to spend time with you? If you knew Jesus was going to come back today, how would you live differently? What would you do differently today if you knew the time Jesus was going to come back? If we live with those expectations, it would affect how we prepare for every day, for every season, for every situation of our life. And the fact is, most of the New Testament is about preparation. Paul, his writings, and and Peter, his writings, they were telling the New Testament church to prepare themselves because they expected Jesus to come back in their lifetime. In 1 Peter 1, verse 13, Peter says, Wherefore, gird up your loins of your mind, be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When he says, gird up your loins, what it literally means in the Greek is prepare yourselves for God to work in your life. Salvation is more than just saying a prayer, getting baptized and waiting to see God in heaven one day. Salvation is living a life in preparation to spend time with God. Because here's the truth. When you go to work tomorrow, when you go to school tomorrow, God is there. When you get up in the morning and start getting ready for work, the Holy Spirit is waiting to spend time with you. When you come to church, you may not be ready for it, but when you came to church this morning, God was waiting here, excited to spend time with you and to fellowship with you. God is ready to meet with us as we reach out to him. That's why James said in, in James, he said, draw nigh to God and he will draw near to you. Look, God's not this distant deity that expects us to jump through all these hoops to please him and make all the right decisions and do everything right. And maybe if we're good enough, maybe, just maybe, he'll spend time with us. God desires to fellowship with you. See, when, when Adam and Eve sinned and mankind fell and man was cast out of the presence of God, God suffered too. God created us to fellowship with him. God created us to spend time with him. So now that man was cast out of his presence, man suffered, but God suffered too. That's why God put redemption in place. Because God loved us so much, he desired to spend time with us so much that he created a plan of sending his son in the form of a perfect son and the God in the flesh to, to suffer and die and be buried and rise again for us to redeem us to man to God, to bring that fellowship back. And so God wants to spend time with you. And so God says, if, if you want to spend time with me, just draw down to me and I'll, I'll draw down to you. See, God doesn't make us take all the steps. God says, just... Just take a, take a step towards me, and I'll take a step towards you. And God says, the more you get close to me, the closer I'll get to you. God's word is alive and active. God wants to speak to you. God wants to fellowship with you. And Advent reminds us that when Jesus came, he was called God with us. So God 
is always with us. If you've got a time in your life where you don't feel like God's as close as he has been, it's not God's fault. He's not moved. You have. So we need to prepare our hearts in expectation, waiting to spend time with God. And so that gives us hope that we should change how we prepare for Christmas. Don't just prepare for Christmas by buying the presents and putting up a tree and wrapping everything and killing yourself with all the traditions. Look, we all, me and April, we've done it in the past where every, we've got every week almost, sometimes every day planned out during Christmas, we're going to take the kids here and we're going to do this and we're going to have this special activity and we're going to take pictures doing this and we're going we're gonna to send out cards. Look, I know a lot of y'all send out Christmas cards and I appreciate it. We don't. Why? Because it, it's, it's stressful on us. We're like, it's, just, it's one more thing. That takes away from us focusing on the purpose of Christmas. So we don't do it. We used to do, go all, run all over the place, and we now, we've taken the position now, if our kids don't ask to do it, we ain't doing it. Because we're trying to make memories with them. We're trying to spend time with them. So why kill ourselves to make memories of something they don't want to do? So guess what? If they don't want to go see Santa this year, we ain't going to see Santa. And we're fine with that. They want to go see a movie instead? We'll go see a movie with them. We'll do whatever they want to do because we're trying to prepare our hearts to spend time with each other and time with God. So this year, as you're, I just said, see a movie, and Connor got real excited. He's like, I'm going to see a movie now. So I know when I get home, he's going to say, hey, Dad, let's go see a movie this Christmas. <clears throat> but instead of preparing your hearts and preparing your life for all this busy stuff, take some time and prepare to spend time with God. Prepare to understand what he did for you. Spend time with him every day you can. Preparation increases with expectation. And finally, preparation brings fruit. Now, true repentance is not evident uh, by a prayer, uh, asking for forgiveness, or coming forward in tears after church service. True repentance is evident in our life by one thing. Change. Repentance means a change of direction, so there has to be a change. It isn't an issue of forgiveness. God freely offers forgiveness to all of his children whenever we ask it. First John 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful unto us just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Repentance isn't saying you're sorry over and over and over for the same thing. It is changing your mind about how you're living and what you're doing and changing direction to move away from that sin. And the fruit of repentance, the evidence of repentance is change. Now, it doesn't happen all at once, but it should be happening. It should be seen in our life. True repentance shows a change of heart. True repentance shows a desire to live in fellowship with God. And there's a difference between feeling sorry for your sin and truly repenting of your sin, and it's found in realizing what sin does. Sin destroys your fellowship with God. It destroys your testimony for God, and it destroys your usefulness for God. Sin is destructive and ugly, and repentance is getting to the place where you say, I don't want to go there anymore. True change, true desire to change is the fruit of repentance. The fruit of of preparing your heart for Jesus, and that is what Advent is about. 
It's about preparing our hearts for the coming Messiah. And since we don't know when He's coming, we need to prepare now. The promise that Micah and all the other prophets clung to gave them hope that they would be rescued. Rescued from the penalty of sin, rescued from the bondage of sin, and redeemed to a right relationship with God the Father. They prepared for that promise to be fulfilled, and it was when Jesus came as a baby in a manger. Salvation came as a form of a baby, God in the flesh. He lived, he died, and he rose again to pay our debt, to give us hope. Christmas was the beginning of a rescue mission that was completed on the cross. God came to man. The Creator humbled himself so that we could be set free. He paid our ransom. So this Christmas, let's be expectant and prepared. Let's expect to fellowship with God. Let's expect to spend time with God. And let's expect God to come through for us. Expect Jesus to return to claim his bride. Emmanuel, God with us, has come. We have been rescued. And through his rescue, we have been saved and redeemed. And because his rescue is complete, our response should be to prepare in great expectation for his second advent. So this morning, as we begin the Advent season, we're going to have some prayer and thank God for what he's done. If the Holy Spirit spoke to your heart, you can come forward and maybe if you need to get saved this morning, maybe you've never accepted Christ as your Savior. And you're sitting here and you're thinking, if I died right now, I don't know where I'd go. We can show you through Scripture what the Bible says, how you can know for sure, not because of anything you've done, not because of anything you can do, but because of his death, burial, and resurrection, how you can know for sure you have a home in heaven. Maybe you're hearing you say, I am saved, but I've not been, I've not been living my life to reflect his glory. I've allowed Christmas to become about stuff and things and, and people and traditions, and I've, I've missed the true meaning of Christmas that God came to rescue me and God coming back again to get me one day. Maybe to come forward and confess that. But as Ms. Trudy comes to the piano and begins to play, 